And the difference between a melting pot and a salad bowl is that in the melting pot, the, and the emphasis was that is, you know, Islam, uh, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, and everything would eventually become Christian, ah. right? Because that was the dominant. The salad bowl, the elements of Christianity and Islam and Judaism and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all contribute to that salad. And it doesn't mean that they have to uh, eradicate who they are or give up who they are. It means that they cherish what they are, share it with others. That doesn't mean that you and I will agree on everything. There are a lot more things that we agree on than what we differ on. And unfortunately, this darn world of ours tries to emphasize the differences and the tensions rather than the similarities. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. So tonight we have um, the questions for you, but before I get to the questions, I want to just allow our panelists here to just share a little bit about themselves, some of your background, and tell us something about maybe your fascination or in particular your hope and joy for this evening, what you hope maybe would, would occur with this panel discussion. So. I'll, I'll just introduce myself very briefly and then I'll, I'll refer to my left here. Um, my name is Filip Milosavljevic. I am a, uh, you could say, a pastor's kid. I grew up in the Christian community for a very long time, but I didn't make a decision to follow in the footsteps of faith until I was 19 years old where I made a decision to um, become a Christian actually. And then in that sense, I also then decided to join the same faith background as my parents, Seventh-day Adventist. And the reasons uh, are varied for why, but we may get into a little bit of these things. So that's a little bit about me. I'm also a pastor here at this church, and I have been at this community for now almost six years and four years as the young adult pastor. So that's me. <clears throat> I'm Rabbi Hillel Cohn. Uh, let me tell you, first of all, before I even tell you about myself, let me wish all of you a Shabbat Shalom. Yes. Those are the Hebrew words. We don't wish one another a happy Sabbath. We wish one another a peaceful Shabbat, ah. a peaceful Sabbath. And in Yiddish, which is a language spoken by Eastern European Jews, they would just simply say, good Shabbos. May it be a good Sabbath for you. Um, I was born in Berlin, Germany. Um, my parents, my sister and I, came as refugees from Nazism in 1939. And uh, what might be of interest to many of you, because you're part of the Adventist community, is about six months, my father had been a rabbi in Germany and uh, waited, uh, trying to help young people, particular 
definitely leave a, a very uh, threatening time. And uh, three or four months after we arrived in America, uh, you could no longer leave Germany. But uh, six months later, we were taken in by a small Jewish community uh, in Walla Walla, Washington. And Walla Walla is very, very important to the Adventist community. Very and important. That's why we say it twice, Walla Walla. <laughs> well, right. Yes. Time that I loved so much, they named it twice. Uh, and I must tell you that uh, uh, it was only after I came to San Bernardino, and that's about 60 years ago, that I really became acquainted with Adventism. Uh, I came, I uh, received my undergraduate degree, grew up in the Pacific Northwest, Walla Walla, Seattle, and then uh, moved to California, and received my undergraduate degree at UCLA in political science. And my seminary work was done at the Hebrew Union College in Los Angeles, and then completed at its uh, campus in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I was ordained in 1963, and immediately came to San Bernardino to be the uh, assistant rabbi of Congregation Emmanuel. Congregation Emmanuel was, at one time, until the 1930s, the only synagogue between Pasadena and Phoenix. That's hard for you to understand. Um, and it was a, it's a, the oldest Jewish community in Southern California was that of San Bernardino, where the first Jews came along with the Mormon pioneers. And I served as the assistant rabbi for one year and then became co-rabbis with my predecessor, Rabbi Norman Feldheim, after whom the Central Library in, Los in San Bernardino is named. And in 1971, after he retired, I became the rabbi of the congregation and served for a total of 38 years. And I retired in 2001, uh, but I have failed retirement twice, and I'm on my third retirement. Uh, after just a couple months of retirement, I was asked if I would help a struggling congregation on the other side of the San Bernardino County line uh, one weekend a month, and I did that, a little town called Las Vegas, Nevada. And I would have to go there one weekend a month and did that for about five and a half years. It was originally supposed to be for six months and then uh, served 10 years as a part-time rabbi in uh, Palm Desert at the Sun City Jewish Services. But I have a long and wonderful relationship with uh, the university church, with Adventism in general, but particularly the university church. And I uh, told your pastor that uh, one of the former senior pastors of the university church uh, Bill Loveless was a dear, dear friend of mine, and I see you like Bill too. Uh, he dedicated you. Uh, I, I won't tell you a lot of things, uh, but uh, he and I played racquetball together at Drayson Center for a long time, and uh, very, very special friend, and his memory uh, remains a blessing. Uh, I am the Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Emmanuel, which moved in 2010 from San Bernardino to Redlands. And uh, right now is without a rabbi, and I have returned to serve them again. And, is this uh, the fourth so, this time? My, the fourth well, <laughs> almost. And uh, anyhow, it, uh, and I've done a lot of things here with the university church. I've yeah, taught classes here for over the years. and. Uh, Bill Lovelace and I did a series of 
programs, I think it was called Options on the uh, International Adventist Network. So I, I've gone on too long. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Oh, and Thank I must so tell much. you just one thing that <laughs> I did a lot of preparation for today's uh, program because I was invited and it, it gave me a lot of time to prepare. I received the call about 3.45 or 4 o'clock this afternoon that <laughs> could I come. And, you know, normally I would not come on a Sabbath Eve, but uh, I don't have commitments uh, every Sabbath Eve. So my wife is at home watching the Sabbath service from Central Synagogue in New York, and I'm here. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. My name is Khalid Bahijri. Uh, my students here call me Dr. B to make it easy. <laughs> I'm honored to be here with you. I was um, born in Ethiopia. My parents come from uh, originally from Yemen, a small country in the Middle East. I lived in Ethiopia for uh, 18 years. And one of the very unique, I've been traveling quite a bit, as I'll tell you in a moment. But one of the very distinct things about Ethiopia is that I remember, you know, I'm, I come from a Muslim background, of course. Um, but there were, you know, it's a very diverse community there in Ethiopia. Very, very diverse. Addis Ababa, especially the capital city, quite diverse. Until today, I don't know if my neighbors were Muslims or Christians or maybe Jews, I have no idea. That's how really we blended with one another. All we knew is that he is my neighbor or she is my neighbor. I, we don't, religion, the label behind that religion didn't, didn't matter. We just lived with one another. So that was a very unique, very unique experience. 18 years I stayed in Ethiopia and then for undergraduate degree as a first generation student, I came here to the US, um, to Tennessee. University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee. Go Vols! Yeah. <laughs> if somebody is listening from Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> so um, I stayed there uh, as a, uh, for my pre-med four years in Ethiopia and in the Middle East, generally in Africa. If you want to go to school of medicine, after high school, you just go to college, you stay six years, you graduate with medicine. My dad thought that was the case sending me here to the U.S., so he didn't know that there is a pre-med component and then there is a medical school component that I have to apply to. And in his mind, he was thinking, I'm in school of medicine. And I've been, every time I go and visit, I try to explain. And, and they still don't get it. <laughs> so I, I finished my undergraduate and now reality comes where I'm telling my dad, I have to apply to medical school. I have to take the, you know, the MCAT exam and all of this. I, he said, I, I thought you were in medical school. So anyways, I tried to get into some of the schools here. It was quite expensive, very expensive. So I decided to apply in many places. Eventually, I got to the Philippines. Four years in the Philippines. I was sharing this with Pastor Phil earlier. $10,000. I graduated with $10,000. Medical school, believe it or not. <laughs> so that's amazing. That's a good deal. Your, your student loan would have been wiped out with Biden's <laughs> recent announcement. One quarter, just pay it here, you know, 10000 but four years there. So anyways, so I decided, then I want to do my residency here. I couldn't get a visa to come back. So one of the faculty members said, why don't you just go for master's in public health to the U.S.? Once you're there, then you can do your residency, study for your boards and then residency. I thought that was fascinating. So I decided... Okay, I'll apply. I applied to many places, Loma Linda University. Thank God. 
accepted me. So I come here in 1999, and I'll share this story with you, how shocking it was initially when I arrived. LAX, 4 p.m. <laughs> Friday. I had no idea about Adventists. Remember, my background is I just lived with people. I didn't know labels. So religion really didn't matter. I mean, I, I'm a very religious person, everybody in their own way, but how we label others really doesn't matter. Anyways, I come here 4 p.m. LAX, by the time I get here, it's sunset. <laughs> Daniel's Hall. I'm trying to look for the guy that will show me the room. There's nobody there. <laughs> Apparently, people were in the church here. I had no idea. I waited, eventually somebody showed up, and they show me the room, I get there Saturday morning. Of course, dirty clothes, I need to wash all this stuff. Looking for the laundry, there's nobody there. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna live with these clothes for quite some time. So I decide, oh, the market is very close to Daniel's Hall. I'll just go to the market where there is no single car. <laughs> it's closed. But then on the website, I remember the one distinct thing that I really loved, because I used to be cross-country runner in Ethiopia. So I, I'm thinking of the Drayson Center. I'm just going to go there and have a blast <laughs> at this facility. As you might imagine, it's closed. That's when I thought I'm in a cult. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I've been in Loma Linda University for 20 years now. It is one of the most amazing experiences. I remember when the event of 2001 happened, September 11. I remember very well. And they, the university came and they provided all the support. Dr. Hart and others provided the support. And they said, we're here with you. you know, don't worry, and so on. And they were asking me, what do you like about Loma Linda? Why, what is it so distinct for? I said, it is the closest that I can live my Islamic faith. It's really that close. It's really, I mean, every, the, the meaning, the, the values, the compassion, all that that I, spoke, I speak with in my own faith at my mosque is exactly what we experience here. So it has been an amazing journey, 20 years. I'm a faculty here. At, I was teaching a school of public health after I graduated uh, from, from a master's and a PhD program. I taught there for about 16 years. And then now in School of Pharmacy for four years, I'm a faculty there. I teach biostatistics and, uh, and uh, epidemiology and pharmaceutical calculations. In terms of my, uh, my Muslim community, we have a mosque that we recently are, uh, have built. Uh, we started building. You probably have seen it, a very unique kind of cubicle structure on Beaumont and Nevada, just that intersection after the railroad. That's our mosque. You're more than welcome to join us anytime there. Um, I'm on the board of directors there, but just a volunteer. Uh, they're serving, just like I serve here, my, my beloved community here. When it was uh, finishing Ramadan, yeah. you guys had this amazing festival there. I wanted to come and, and join at that time. Thank you so much, both of you, very much. We're going to have a good evening, you can already tell. Well, we're going to jump into our, our very first question for tonight. Uh, friends, I hope that you'll enjoy this evening. I'm going to read through the questions that we have for you. And then uh, we'll begin with question uh, number two here. So the fastest growing group are the nuns, not the ones with the white hats, but N-O-N-E-S. Those who have no religious commitment. While there may be some bright spots of increase, decline in all world religions seems to be the norm. Why is secularism on the rise? Should we be concerned? What do we do about this? Three, share with us what 
religion you represent and which branch of that faith you represent. Tell us something unique that might be about that faith and some differences maybe that your branch holds to the others and maybe even a favorite verse that you might have. Fourth, what do you really wish people knew about your faith? What are several misconceptions you hope to clear up with your religious group to this audience this evening? Five, is religious diversity a, quote, beautiful mosaic to be sought after or cause for, quote, concern and division? as no world can exist with competing worldviews. What would a society look like that values religious pluralism? Do you have any example of a religiously rich, diverse community and a pluralistic environment you've read about, observed, or been part of? That's kind of a run-on question, I guess. That's kind of big. Ben Shapiro said, number six, to be religious is to be good. If you are not good, are you really religious? Religion has been blamed for millennia as the seed of violence, hatred, and division. Would the world be a better place without Christianity, Islam, or Judaism? And what do you think about the statement concerning being good? And finally, what is the purpose of your religion? The end goal of why it exists. Is evangelism, sharing your faith or purpose in hopes of someone converting, important to your religion? Why or why not? So let's begin with this first one. The fastest growing group in the United States at this moment are the nuns, those who have no religious commitment. While there might be some increase in some of our faith groups, uh, for the majority, faith is declining. So why is secularism on the rise? Should we be concerned? And what do we do about it? Rabbi Cohen, why don't we begin with you? Well, let me simply say that I don't think that the uh, failure to be part of a religious institution can be equated with not being religious. There is a great deal to being religious, and that is taking part in the world, helping to make the world a better place. You don't have to do that necessarily through a religious institution, be it through the Islamic mosque, through the synagogue, through the church, whatever. There can be people who are very religious, but not affiliated with a religious community. But I think one of the things that has moved people away is the fact that we are in a world that prizes meism and individualism and has in many ways moved away from understanding the importance of being part of a community. And I think the church, the synagogue, the mosque, these are communities, are part of a community, and I think the um, the culture, the mood of our times is not one which is as understanding or respectful of community. And I would also say that uh, I, I don't know why secularism necessarily is on the rise, but I think that people have also been disenchanted with religion. Uh, disenchanted in the sense that um, Sometimes the concerns that are expressed in the religious community, be it Jewish, Islamic, uh, Christian, uh, Buddhist, whatever it is, are not necessarily the concerns of the real world. There is an awful lot of concern with the other world and with, I must say, and this is an area where Jews differ from Christians and Muslims, but uh, our emphasis is not on life after death. 
that is a major emphasis in classical Christianity. Our emphasis is on life after birth, and there's a big difference. I don't know what is going to happen to me after I die. It'd be very interesting. It's interesting to speculate. But I do know that there's a point between the time I'm born and the time I die in which I can or cannot make a contribution to the world in which I live. And to me, that's religion. Um, and the religious communities give me the tools, the values, the, the map that I can follow to become a more caring, active, involved, and creative uh, human being. Just maybe a couple of points to add. Uh, in, in my view, I think, yes, there's a growing secular uh, segment to our community, and, and I think that's, that's very obvious in a way. But I think, on the other hand, there's also a growing religious uh, presence. But the voice of the secular group is, I think, on the mainstream. It is heard. The voice of the religious group, and I'm referring to here the voice of the mainstream religious that actually represent the religion, is not much heard. So even within the religious groups, you might have fanatics, extremists, that are called religious, but they actually misrepresent the religion. Uh, not point. only the religion of that given faith. So in our case, for example, as Muslims, you might have extremist Muslims that might represent not only Islam, mm. but they represent religion as a whole, mm. wherein others will start to run away and say, if religion does this, I would rather stay away from it. Mm. So I think there is, so there is a growing also religious presence, but unfortunately, it's not well directed, it's not guided, and it doesn't have the actual voice that needs to be heard. Mm. So that probably could contribute in addition, to, of mm. course, to what the rabbi has said. Very mentioned. good points, very good points, very good points. There's a, a sociologist I've just uh, started half, getting halfway through his book, Robert Putnam, in the book Bowling Alone. And he writes on the demise of community organization in society itself. Bowling alleys are becoming more and more extinct. Clubs and organizations are becoming more and more extinct. Churches are finding themselves on the margins in some ways. And so this idea of me-ism has occurred in such a way that we have broken down community, but it's been for not our betterment, but for our worse, as community organizations, clubs, and gatherings begin to cease. And what I find fascinating for, for us in this religious community is the fact that when we gather, whether it be in a synagogue or a mosque, I believe our society actually strengthens and tightens in a way that brings the flourishing of our society. I think, as you said it, how when we enter into communities where they have kind of departed from the main and said we're going to be on the fringe without everyone, that's, I think, a, a very scary place because then fanaticism does emerge. That is a big concern. So I think we should, as a community and a society, urge people to be part of church community uh, part of a mosque, part of a synagogue, because you begin to gather strength together in a way that when you're isolated and alone, hey, we as young adults know the rise of, 
of COVID didn't help mental health in any way. Uh, the rise of suicides in young adults and teenagers is at an astronomical and alarming rate over the last two years when we've pulled away from gathering together. So I think that's, that's a very important thing. So very good points. Our third question, unique to each one of you. Share with us what religion you represent and which branch of that religion of faith you represent. Tell us something that's unique about your faith and maybe even some differences that your branch holds from the others. And maybe even if there is a passage from your scriptures that you'd like to share, feel free to do so. Of course, I mentioned I uh, belong to uh, the Islamic faith. In the, within the Islamic faith, um, just, uh, you know, many would think that Islam is a very kind of suddenly appeared. It's very different than all other religions. Just to give you a very short um, uh, perspective to this, from Islamic faith point of view, Jesus, Moses, Abraham, uh, Solomon, David, all of these, all the way to Adam, all the way there, they all worship the same God. It's the same faith. Mm. And from our perspective, God cannot give different messages across time. It has to be the same message. So we believe that the same message that Jesus was sent with is the same as Moses and Muhammad and so on. So that's a very unique kind of perspective to, to highlight, to give you kind of an insight of the faith. So in other words, it's a very simple thing that God is one. He is the only one. He is the creator. He is the all-knowing all the values that we know even within Christianity or Judaism mm -hmm. about God. But in that, he is distinct than everybody else. So Muhammad might be special, but there is no way he would reach the level of God from Islamic perspective. Similar perspective about Moses or Jesus or David or so and They're all prophets. So that's kind of a very distinct kind of perspective to, to Islam that might just clarify, mm. you know, Islam suddenly showed up about 1,400 years ago, no, it traces itself all the way back. So it's mm. inclusive in a way of everybody else. You cannot nullify the ones that come, have come before because God doesn't just shed, suddenly show up at certain time and choose a certain people and say, these are the ones everybody else is excluded. Mm. It's inclusive in that sense. So that's a very kind of, maybe we'll go through other, uh, other aspects of, of the faith later on. Um, but one of the, um, uh, the uh, fascinating aspects of, of the faith, there is the, the Quran is 114 chapters. There's one very distinct chap uh, uh, verse within the longest chapter, the first chapter. It talks about God, the uniqueness of God, and nothing is to be associated with him. The verse goes in Arabic, and of course, I don't want to say it here because you won't understand anything from it. But what's very interesting, after talking about God in the most profound verse in the Quran, the verse immediately after it that comes says, La ikraha There is no compulsion in religion. Hmm. So even though God talked about his, himself in his unique ways, who he is and so on, but then immediately says, there is no compulsion. In other words, others might have their faith. You, this is our faith but you cannot force others unto this faith. Mm. It's, so there is no compulsion in religion. And I think that gives a little bit of maybe insight mm. 
to the faith in that it's there is a lot of inclusiveness in it mm. and understanding that there are other faiths Jesus and Moses and Adam and all of these were prophets from the same message the same lineage the same beliefs Muhammad when he brought Islam was the same message through angel Gabriel that came to Jesus Moses and so on mm. So that kind of gives a very brief insight mm, yeah. and then we can go now, more later. Now, some people here may be a little bit um, s- not as versed in the community of Islam. When you say Islam, does this represent kind of all all Muslims are the same in that sense or are there differences? Can you just briefly explain okay, some of those differences? That's an excellent question. I'm glad you actually touched on that because it was on the, the text. <laughs> the... Islamic faith, in terms of the core beliefs, are all one. In terms of the core beliefs, core beliefs. There will always be, in any given group, there are very few small groups that have their own ways of, always, in any group. But for the most part, Islam has two main branches. For the most part, what's called the Sunni and what's called the Shia. The Sunni is the mainstream, the Sunni. It's the majority of, of the Muslim world are, are uh, the Sunni kind of background. And then you have the Shia. So the main distinction there is not on the core beliefs that I just mentioned. No. So the core beliefs are the same. Believe in God. Believe in, in, in the message of Muhammad. Believing in the message of all the prophets. Believing in the Quran. Believing in the hereafter. All of this is the same. What happened is there was a political difference in terms of after Prophet Muhammad's death as to who becomes the successor. And people had differences of view. And so that started kind of the division. Mm. Shia means branch. That lit- uh. Literally, Shia means branch. Mm. So they branched from that perspective of the mainstream people who chose mm. the, per- the successor. And so from that, of course, once you take a certain branch, ideas develop and uh, people start to marginalize others and mm. so on. Mm. That's where it starts. But... For the most part, it's these two kind of main branches okay. that, that okay. we're dealing Thank with. You. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. Well, I have to preface my response to that by saying that this may come as a kind of a shock to most of you. Uh, I think of myself as a Jew, and that means part of the Jewish people. And I also happen to be part of Judaism, the religion of the Jewish people. They're not one and the same. Mm. And then that's hard for Christians and, and Islamic uh, to understand because it's, it's, I am not part primarily of a faith community. I am primarily part of a people. There are approximately 18 to 20 million Jews in the world. We're a very small number of people, right? And uh, you can divide that uh, between those who think of themselves as Jews part of a people and those who subscribe to the religion of the Jewish people. That means that the Jewish people is influenced by the religion, but not all Jews really subscribe to the religious dimension of the Jewish people. In the religious dimension, today uh, there are, you could really separate us between traditionalists and modernists. The terminology is used, orthodox, conservative, reform, that's the three major branches. There are others that one would have to include. Orthodoxy or traditionalism would begin with the premise that the law, the 613 commandments in the first five books of the Bible, in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, were words of God 
given to Moses and then imparted to the people. And those words, along with the rabbinic kind of amplification or interpretation, are essential laws. So that, for example, on the Sabbath, there are things that one can do and one can't do, right? Uh, the modernist does not see the law as being binding, but rather sees the, the values of the people as being the most important. That doesn't mean that the practices are unimportant. To me, the practices are expressions of the values that I have as part of the Jewish people. You know, they're the, uh, and I, I would use this as the one example, um, there was a great uh, Jewish thinker of the 20th, 19th century, Samson Raphael Hirsch, who once said, the catechism of the Jew is the Jewish calendar. Isn't that interesting? So the Sabbath is the most important of all Jewish observances. But there are many ways to observe the Sabbath. Uh, the traditionalists would say, I observe it by not doing any form of work, by not kindling a fire, by not doing this. They observe the dietary laws. Uh, and I must just, uh, as a parenthetical statement, tell you that Seventh-day Adventists, I have high regard for many Jews are Seventh-day absentists. That means that we, they don't go to the synagogue, or they don't observe the laws. But the principles of the Jewish people that we'll get to in one of the later questions are still primary. In the state of Israel, that's a good example today. I would say that out of the eight million, seven to eight million Jews in Israel today, maybe two to three million are what we would call, quote, religious. The rest are secularists, but they're part the Jewish history is their history. The Jewish observances are their observances. The Jewish ethical values are their ethical values. But they are not, quote, religious, and they, do not, they don't find themselves obligated to follow the laws. And I, this may get to be a little confusing for some of you, but maybe it can be best described this way. Somebody once said that we have a trinity, not to be confused with the Christian trinity. And that is that there are three elements to being part of our people, believing, belonging, and behaving, right? Think about that. Belonging and behaving are more important than believing. That doesn't mean that believing is unimportant, but behavior is the most important. To live an, a, a, an ethical life is the most important. To make a contribution, making the world a better place is important. Belief, and this may come as a shock to some of you, it is not impossible to be a Jewish atheist. You cannot be an atheist Christian. You cannot be an atheist Muslim, correct? But you can be an atheist Jew, right? That means that uh, you can deny the existence of God, but that doesn't mean that you're free to do whatever you darn please. You're obligated to live a certain kind of ethical uh, life. And uh, so behaving is far more important uh, than uh, believing. And belonging, being part, belonging to the people is in, in many instances or many ways, it uh, makes us much closer to Islam than to Christianity because Islam also sees itself as a people. So that by being a Jew, my, that doesn't mean that Christians don't have a history, but my history is essential to who I am. 
And uh, not all, by the way, not all Jews are born into the Jewish people. One can choose to be part of the Jewish people, but we won't, and we don't have an evangelical program. We, we don't start with the premise that we have the true faith. We start with the premise that this is a way of life that means something and is important and significant to me. So, so evangelism isn't necessarily you know, part of the Jewish... It was maybe a few thousand years ago mm. that Jews did try to bring people... But, you know, being a Jew is not easy. Mm. And that's why uh, when, uh, uh, you know, the early Christians uh, under the leadership of Paul kind of uh, said, let's do away with all those commandments, mm. right? And... Uh, let, let's not, no, I'm not talking about the ethical command. I'm talking yeah. about the, the ritual commandments. We'll do away with those. Mm. Uh, and uh, there are certain things that dissuaded people from uh, being, becoming Jewish. Yeah. Um, it was a minority, or one could always call it a subversive element in human civilization. Subversive in that we held to a way of life that wasn't very popular it was very demanding. Mm. And uh, I think that uh, certainly in the early days of Islam, they recognized that and recognized the, the partnership that we have. And, you know, that's a, kind of a convoluted answer yeah. to the question. Oh, that was fantastic. Yeah. Now, just to ask you as well, how, how much is this idea of evangelism, sharing your faith, hoping that someone would convert part of the Islamic uh, faith tradition today? So it is very important. Islam is a way of life. Mm. So it's, it's not just a religion. You just you know, claim you have on your passport, <laughs> you know, and that's it. It's a way of life. It's detailed way of life. So it's very important to live that, that life. What that means practically is you share your experiences, your values, and so on with others. That's very important. That means that I behave as a Muslim at work, I behave as a Muslim with my family, in my community, on the street, every, that's expected. And it's important that, that you, as you reflect and live that, that you reflect the values of the religion and not just being a good person. So that's very important from Islamic perspective. Having said that, I refer back to the verse that I mentioned earlier, there is no compulsion in religion. That's very ingrained in, in, in our... So, the idea that a person converts, that's not at my hand. I don't decide if a person converts. I don't have any force, any way to force that unto others. But if a person decides and sees our way of life and says, I would like to convert, at our mosque almost on a weekly basis, we have one or so that come to convert. That's a choice that people have. At the time when they actually decide and they want to declare that testimony of faith, on a Friday so that the rest of the community knows and provides them support. At that moment, I always remind them to that person and say, did anyone force you to do this? <laughs> did anyone, was there anyone that you sensed was kind of you know, pushing you towards this? And ensuring that that's a personal choice that the person made. And then once they have made that personal choice, of course, so my role is to live Islam just like Adventists live their religion and, and Jews and others. That I'm responsible for. But whether a person converts or not, that's not at my hand. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't seek that a person. I'm interacting for, with them so that they convert. That's not my business. If God wants to guide and, and, 
uh, they decide to convert, that's, that's the choice that they have. Yeah. Can I just, uh, because part of that question asked if we have a verse to share, and it's interesting, just by coincidence, you know, there is a, in Jewish practice, we read a portion of the Pentateuch, or the Torah, each week of the year. So from the beginning of Genesis, and we'd start that in October sometime, uh, it, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, so I can't tell you the exact date in the uh, regular calendar. But, uh, and by the end of the year, we get, make our way through the end of the book of Deuteronomy and then roll it, scroll back, and begin all over again. Uh, it happens that the portion for this week is the portion we're nearing the end of our uh, religious year. Uh, it's from the book of Deuteronomy. And it's in this week's portion that will be read in synagogues tomorrow around the world that you find the 18th chapter, the 20th verse, what to me is the most important, one of the two most, but I'll call it the most important uh, verse of all of the Torah, of the Pentateuch, mm. and of Scripture. So what is it? In Hebrew, it's tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, justice, justice shall you pursue. Hmm. Not just justice shall you pursue, but real justice. Just means to just ends. There's a lot of ways in which one can interpret it, but the, the pursuit of justice is, to me, the most fundamental religious act I can engage in. Wow. Now, when you say justice uh, and pursuit... It has a lot, of, a lot of dimensions. Yeah, yeah. So... It doesn't doesn't necessarily mean you're enacting justice on your own behalf for a person, but seeking it for them in some way. So, talking about recognizing all human beings as being equal, hmm. recognizing all human beings as having a right to exist and a right to uh, use their creative powers, hmm. just uh, creating just societies that. Uh, will not tolerate things like racism, that will not tolerate things like intolerance mm -hmm. or prejudice, mm -hmm. that will not tolerate the kind of uh, uh, distortions of justice that we see even in our own country mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. The deprivation of rights of people. Mm. Yes, good, good. Including voting. <laughs> <laughs> Professor B, uh, tell us, what do you really wish people knew about your faith? Maybe some misconceptions that you hope could be cleared up uh, that you might share about your religious community to us. That's a long list. <laughs> <laughs> I'll choose one. I think it, briefly I might have touched upon it earlier, but it's something that is, you know, you, you open the social media, any, and if an event happens and somehow there's a, a, Islam, a Muslim name involved, then it's labeled terrorism. And it's somehow what people know, most people, what people know about Islam becomes associated with terrorism. It's a very sad thing. A religion that has been there for 1400 years, where for hundreds of years, 800 almost years, they were rulers across the land. They, Imam al-Khawarizmi is the one that invented algorithm. Imam al-Jabr is the one that invented algebra. And, and so much science evolved in the early days. So Muslims had, if they were terrorists, if the religion was telling them to kill people around them, they had the chance to do it. <laughs> they, lived, they had the chance to do it. They had the power. But that is, that is 
uh, it's something that is almost quite insulting when in the Quran itself, there is no such a, such a reference. What I was very, very in the Methodist church. I remember a few years ago, I was invited when the San Bernardino shooting happened. So Pastor David at the Methodist church invited me to speak to the congregation there. And I was speaking and then he told me, listen, there is a group here that probably know exactly what they want to ask you, so be prepared. And, and he was right, because one of the individuals just stood up and said, I have a verse in the Quran that says that you are allowed to kill people. I said, let me hear it. And then he quoted the verse, the meaning of which is that if you meet those that are against your faith, kill them. It is a verse in the Quran. I told him, listen, it's very important so that we don't things are, take things out of context. The Quran is a book that doesn't have hidden files that nobody has access, everybody has access to it. it talks, it's a way of life. It talks about politics, it talks about what happens in the home, it talks about what, how you should be dealing with people on the streets, justice, it talks about wars. This verse that you just quoted, if you go a few verses back, and I happen to memorize that portion of the Quran, I, I recited that, and I mentioned to him that the verse specifically is saying that if you're in the battlefield, those were the earlier verses that were not quoted, if you're in the battlefield, show courage, fight for yourself, defend others, stand for justice. That's what the verse was saying. Don't, don't retract and let people kind of take advantage of those that are not able to defend themselves. Fight for others. What's wrong with that when we talk about patriotism and we talk about our country and people that defend our country here? So what's wrong if I'm there to stand for my religion or stand for those that are in need and defend them. So Islam comes and says, if you face such a thing and you're in the battlefield, don't retract, be courageous, fight back. That's what it's saying. To take that out of context and put it in such a way that anywhere you see people kill them is nonsense. <laughs> it's really nonsense. I'll quote for you a verse that I also happen to memorize. Yeah, thank you. I also, <laughs> I also want to quote for you just one verse because it's very important. Uh, um, Allah does not, Allah means God. Allah, by the way, Christians also say to their God, Arab Christians, they say Allah. So it's not a unique type of God. Christian Arabs call, it, call him Allah also. Allah does not hold you back from dealing with those that don't fight you and those that don't kick you out of your homes, to be kind and nice to them. Be nice to your neighbors, be nice to those that are around you. The verse is referring to non-Muslims. So the idea that this, this misconception, if you will, that Muslims are there, that whenever they see a person that is outside their faith, they just chop their head, is just insulting. Because that person apparently does not read enough or has identified few verses from social media or so where there's a propaganda to send a certain message and just took that and, and started to label 1.5 billion people with that. That's just absurd a little bit, but that's one of the many misconceptions, but an important one, I think, to clarify. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. I think we all appreciate it to hear that from you. Thank you.
Rabbi Kohn, I would ask you the, the same question as well. Is there a misconception you would hope to clear up this evening? Well, I think I may have mentioned a couple in passing. One is that the misconception is that you have to believe in God. Um, many Jews, of course, do. And I find the belief in God to be a very important part of my life, though I may understand God in a much different way than somebody else does. Uh, I see God not as the uh, divine revealer, but actually as the, uh, uh, my, in, my hope would be for myself, my children, my family, my community, to become God-like, to become uh, more moral, more um, equitable, more just. I, I should have been passing just to also mention that when I said traditionalist and modernist reform, I happen to be a reformed Jew, uh, that's the more liberal of the uh, uh, Jewish uh, groups. But there are, by the way, there are humanist Jews who uh, do not believe in God. There are Jews who are Jews primarily as Zionists, who's primarily, who are primarily concerned with the upbuilding and the maintenance of the state of Israel as a Jewish homeland. And there are, you know, all kinds. So uh, we also have uh, some pet phrases, you know, that Jews are fond of asking questions and of arguing with one another. There are, you know, where you ever, there's the phrase that wherever you have two Jews, you have three opinions. <laughs> and, the, and the only thing that any two Jews can agree on is how much the third Jew should give to charity. <laughs> um, but I, I do want, in, in terms of um, misconceptions, uh, I, I said this in passing, we are not, we do not believe ourselves to be the true faith. Hmm. And um, the experiences that Jews have had over the last few thousand years um, under, unfortunately, uh, uh, Christianity and also Islam, but primarily Christianity, I must say, uh, foisting on us the requirement that we become Christians and not be able to maintain our Jewishness is something that made Jews, you know, uh, very, very uh, uncomfortable, if, oh, uh, sure. to say the least. The Crusades were not easy times for Jews. Yeah. And, uh, you know, our, well, I may say, may find that the Jewish experience is the most meaningful to me. I cannot say that it will be the most meaningful to everyone. Mm. I have difficulty with those who tell me that their way of believing is the only way to believe. And unless you believe my way, they'll say, you are lost. You are a sinner. Mm. I, I, I want to just uh, share with you something that I, I thought I, I bring after I received the invitation to be here. A couple of things that might be interesting. Um, somebody once said that one of the differences between Judaism and Christianity, and uh, it would also, I think, uh, pertain to Islam. Judaism is man, and I don't mean man in the, uh, even man or woman, but let me use that term, is man fostering rather than man flagellating. We do not find that we need to uh, condemn the human being. And, and in many ways, that is part of classical, I won't say all, but classical Christianity. And that for us, uh, and I'm going to just quote this, uh, the person who wrote this says, that we attribute to man original worth, not original sin. That's a great difference between classical Christianity 
in Judaism, we approve a robust rather than a puritanical sexual life, but insist that it be characterized by fidelity and integrity. Mm. Our ethics are deed-centered rather than creed-centered, mm. and it's healthfully aggressive in the face of evil rather than passive or permissive, and we don't turn the other cheek to sadism. Mm. We insist that guilt feelings must be related to untoward behavior rather than to the violation of some ecclesiastical principles. Mm. So let me, uh, I see our time is really short, yeah. so. Yeah, thank you, thank you. If, if I were to just say a couple things, uh, just really briefly, you know, misconceptions, many look at the work of Ellen White in our denomination in Christianity as being equal to scripture in authority of the same sense as it is our scriptures. That has been a misconception. If I could just state, that isn't what we believe. We believe that she is a, a woman who was held in high regard, as many would say, a prophet in our community. And she and her writings were very helpful in founding Loma Linda itself, actually. We wouldn't be here without Loma Linda being envisioned in her visions for this being a place of a, a health center for the world. Um, so that's a really important one. One other things maybe that I would say that relates to our conversation is that in, in the Adventist community and Christianity in general, we don't have three gods, but one. And this is a very strange reality that we talk about God, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. But I think the problem is we've given human terminology to a divine mystery, we would call it. As water is one in, in essence, H2O, it carries three unique forms as a gas and a liquid and a solid, yet you wouldn't say it's no longer H2O. It is one in form, or one in essence, but carries multiple form. Jesus is the same God as we call the Father. Jesus is the same God that we call the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is one. So I, that's the only thing I would, I would add to that. And we look at maybe one of our last questions here that we can uh, tackle before we'll just take two or three questions from the audience if you'd like to come and forward. Ben Shapiro said, to be religious is to be good. If you are not good, are you really religious? Religion has been blamed for millennia as the seed of violence, hatred, and division. Would the world be a better place, actually, if Islam, Christianity, and Judaism didn't exist? Didn't exist. And what do you think about this quote about being good? Well, a very quick response, and that is, what do you understand to be the role of religion? Uh, one of the great Jewish thinkers of the 20th century, Mordecai Kaplan, has said it, I think, quite well. The real role of religion is to educate the conscience. And mm. often religions fail to do that. Mm. The education of the conscience to be a decent uh, human being. Um, and what would be the role of uh, uh, you know, the, the Jewish people in the world? Uh, there's a Hebrew phrase called tikkun olam, that the world is in need of repair. Mm. And our constant mission 
is to repair the broken places of the world. Mm. And that does not just talk about countries or communities. It talks about brokenness in individuals as well. Uh, we have the, the word that I used at the very outset when I wished you a Shabbat Shalom, the word peace. The Hebrew word, and it's very similar to salam in, in Arabic, um, comes from the root which means whole or wholeness. And the role of religions, the role of uh, all human beings, regardless of whatever group they belong to, is, I think, to make the world a whole place, a place of where people can thrive, where people can grow, and uh, where uh, we don't uh, uh, destroy this natural world as we're doing uh, you know, so much of today. So tikkun alam, to repair the broken places of the world. Mm -hmm. And that, the emphasis is on the fact that, as I said earlier, I don't know what's going to happen after I die. It's very interesting. But I am concerned with what may, when I die, I want to, I hope that it can be said of me that maybe I made a small, small difference mm. in making the world a better place. Mm. Maybe that's for you and you and you, for all of us. Mm. And, and, and that's the mission. Mm. Uh, and, and to me, that's mm. the essence of religion. Yeah. Thank Briefly, you. maybe to, uh, to add to this. Uh, thank you so much, but that was very insightful. Um, we as human beings are not just physical needs. Mm. There is a spiritual need to us. Mm. So it is very important that there has to be some divine guidance to that spirit. I think we can take care of the physical body relatively well. But that spiritual guidance needs to be of a divine nature, something that knows us from within. Mm. Uh, and I think the presence of God in, in whatever faith that people belong to mm. gives that spiritual presence the need that, that, it, that it requires for it to sustain and go through the stress of life and so on. I think uh, with when we see a program like this one here, where you can clearly tell three different faiths here, the primary religions, if you will, and there are many religions out there, but these are the main ones that are out there. We were able to find a, a way of dialoguing, find common values, mm -hmm. and I think if we embrace this spirit, go to our own communities, not just because we're in a program here and we're mm -hmm. just nice to one another, mm -hmm. but the same messaging could be given in our small groups. Earlier you talked about that small group thing. That's how we really develop, mm. and I really believe that. Mm. You take a small group of people, youth, if you will, in, in my own mosque, and educate them in these very core concepts mm. that is very important that religion is part of our faith. But that the, there are so many common values among the different religions. We're not just talking about take Islam and this is the only way and everybody else is just off. Mm. No, there are so many common things amongst us that if we utilize them, I think much of the misconceptions mm. and much of the misunderstanding about faiths and so on could mm. be relatively corrected to, mm. to make us move forward mm. in, in, a, mm. in ways that are very mm. meaningful to fulfill both the spiritual as well as that physical need mm. that we can take care mm. of. Fantastic. Fantastic. I want to make one comment to this, but before I do... I just want to say, if there is anyone that does have a question, I know I asked a broad variety of questions, so 
might have touched on those. If you'd like to come to the uh, mics here on the side, feel free to do that at this time. Can we extend this until midnight? Yes, <laughs> we might have to. Just very briefly, we're going to just allow for two questions if you'd like. Uh, feel free to come to the mic. But I do want to say, you know, as an Adventist community, we've been very hesitant to have interfaith dialogue and particularly programming because for us, talking about this idea of evangelism, it's very important. It's very important. And because it's so important to us, uh, we have a fear that if we are part of this kinship, that it will water down what we believe. But I think what you brought up is this idea, hey, we're having respectful dialogue, having a, a meaningful experience here. We can share that with our community and say, hey, the other that is vilified many times is not the villain, actually. The other is but other that is our holy brother. And that is allowing them to exist in relationship as part of the human family that still holds value Though they are not me, they are still valuable. So I think as Adventists, we do have a space to grow in this idea that we don't need to be fearful of. But I think each one of us represents this notion that, hey, we distinctly love what we love. And that's okay. It's okay. And it doesn't mean I devalue my beliefs if I enter into a relationship with you. And so I think that's a very important uh, thing that we should all always hold to. But any final comments from the two of you as we're uh, concluding our evening together here? Thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you for having us. You know, as, as I received the invitation this afternoon, I was delighted to be here. Uh, my more traditionalist or orthodox Jewish uh, brothers and sisters would uh, not accept my being here tonight because I had to drive here and, and et cetera, et cetera. But to me, that's, it's as sacred an observance of the Sabbath as I would observe anywhere by being here and, and by helping Beautiful. people understand. I just want to conclude with this, and that is when I was a kid growing up, the the phrase was often used in American life um, that we need to create a melting pot, you know, where all of us would come together. But that was based on a premise that the majority would determine what that melting pot is. And that was replaced a number of years ago by a different concept, and that is a salad bowl. And the difference between a melting pot and a salad bowl is that in the melting pot, the, and the emphasis was that is, you know, Islam, uh, Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, and every would eventually become Christian, ah. right? Because that was the dominant. The salad bowl, the elements of Christianity and Islam and Judaism and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all contribute to that salad. And it doesn't mean that they have to... Uh, eradicate who they are or give up who they are. It means that they cherish what they are, share it with others. That doesn't mean that you and I will agree on everything. There are a lot more things that we agree on than what we differ on. And unfortunately, this darn world of ours tries to emphasize the differences 
and the tensions rather than the similarities. Okay. Thank you so much. That's phenomenal. Well, friends, give them one round of applause again. Thank you so much. As we step off the stage here, you two may have a seat. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to have one final song, but I do want to just bring up this uh, last point. I hope that those of you who maybe have more questions would feel free to uh, engage in dialogue with these two wonderful gentlemen this evening uh, after we finish and spend some more time kind of talking about some ideas that you might have. And my friends, my prayer is that you would recognize that the world is a more beautiful place and that the mosaic of our world does give its diversity and gives it flavor. But I also want to encourage you to recognize this dialogue is also for the purpose of encouraging you to foster a faith and a love for God. I'm unashamedly a Seventh-day Adventist who does love Jesus, and I do want to see uh, this character of God more clearly seen around the world. But my hope is that you would become more faithful in faith and that you would become more faithful to studying and earnestly seeking after God. Um, my, that is my prayer for each one of you this evening. So thank you so much, friends. Thank you, those of you watching online. And God bless you. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church Podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there. On a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment, it makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.